0: Welcome to Mwango Spaces this uh, Friday evening, special edition here. We are just discussing Centum financial year results. Their financial year ended in March and they presented the results for those months. Thank you so much, James, for joining us. Um, Thank you very much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be
1: on this evening. Thank you for hosting me.
0: I had a lot of questions uh, from people talking about how the institution itself is a bit complex. So we're going to start by dissecting what the institution is, and then we're able to see the various businesses that are components of it. Then we will be able to discuss the results after that, so that people have an easier time. We're going to have 30 minutes direct with him. And then after that, in the last 30 minutes, you can bring in your questions. If you have them, you can DM us. You can write below our pinned tweet just to engage us. James is very active on Twitter. I just tag him a question and then he's able to answer them. Maybe we'll start by one of the comments I had today that you're going to produce an ESG report, uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about it before we dig deeper into other things. Thank you. I didn't expect to discuss
1: the ESG report, but we presented our first ESG report today. And it focused on a number of areas, environmental, governance, social. I think what I found interesting on governance, because I've seen a number of reports. On the board, we have a 50% 50-50 board diversity. This is uh, male, female. And all staff and senior management were taking through trainings. And also what was interesting is that we have 40% women at senior management, 0% gender pay gaps. I think uh, probably women are earning a bit more, so I'm not sure who, who was working on this. Uh, social, I think this year we did over 350, 350 students benefited from scholarships and 1,000 direct jobs created. And ninety one percent of procurement spent goes to local suppliers. So those are some of the highlights on social governance from the ESG report.
0: It's interesting, companies are releasing ESG report. I think Equity Bank released theirs uh, earlier this week. You talked about uh, quite a gap, 67% difference between men and women in terms of earnings. So it's good to see you have parity at Centum. Maybe you can start by telling people a bit about Centum, someone who's new, uh, what the company is all about, uh, how many employees do you have, and what are the various businesses that are called price Centum? Centum is
1: an investment company at its heart, and our role is to identify Entities where we can create value or opportunities where we can create value. We deploy the capital and we then work on creating enterprises that can eventually be valuable enterprises. And we monetize the value created by either collecting dividends, interests, shareholder loans, and ultimately exiting. So it's a very simple business. I think what complicates it is the accounting because then We are an investment company and we are required to consolidate earnings and that then creates the impression we are a group. But the reason why uh, many years ago, we were not taking controlling stakes in companies, we were largely taking minority stakes. So most of our stakes were less than 25%, but um, we realized that it was very difficult to create value and exit as a minority. So we then started taking controlling positions and largely to drive the value creation process. But that then created uh, the law of unintended consequences, created a lot of complexity in reporting because now these all companies became a one group and group earnings and group reports. And that created a lot of complexity in the business, at least from the reported side, but the way we operate as an investment holding company with separate portfolio companies.
0: Maybe you can break down a bit some of the companies that are under under Centum, and then so people can be able to understand them. So we have different companies. We
1: have uh, in different sectors. If I pick by sector, we have eighty three percent in Cidian Bank. First, I want to explain that our parenting model is supervisory. We are not hands on. It's a purely supervisory model through the board. So each of these companies operate independently of each other and independently of Centum. And our intervention is largely through the board seats that we occupy. So we have a stake in, in the bank, in the financial services sector, if I look at it sectorally. The Cidian Bank, where we have 83.4%. Uh, that's a bank, I mean, some of you may be customers. There's Nabo Capital, which is an asset management business and investment bank, we have 100%. There's Zohari Credit, which is a payroll lending business. We have 100%. Jafari. Then we in uh, education, we have two companies. There's Longhorn which is a listed company, we hold 60%. There is a school called Sabis Runda, we hold slightly under 20%. In Power, we have Akira Jodamo, we hold that 7.5%. In Agriculture, we have Greenblade Growers, we hold 100%. In Real Estate, we hold 100% of a company called Centum Real Estate. And below it, then they have a number of other companies. And then we have a, a new company now in the international financial center space called Trafic Two Rivers International Finance and Investment Center. And then we have a diversified portfolio of marketable securities, which is managed by an independent fund manager called Nabo Capital.
0: So it's quite not that difficult. Quite a broad level of companies. For our listeners, you just shared on Twitter the, the company overview in terms of the center structure. as the Two Rivers the Centum Real Estate, the Two Rivers Land Company, where Trifik is going to be part of the PE portfolio and then the marketable securities portfolio. James, which one of these companies do you spend most of your time checking? It's quite a broad level. How do you manage the company? as a whole? What happens, each of these companies has an MD, as a
1: board, but I've been CEO for 15 years. And what tends to happen in a broad portfolio like this, at any given time, there's one or two that have a big problem. And so I've never really had a quiet period because at any given time I'm dealing with, a problem or an opportunity or an exit. So I really don't focus on anyone. I focus on the one that needs my immediate attention at the moment. And at one time, it was Sidian. We're having challenges that dropped off my radar. Previously, it was Almasi. We eventually exited, but one time it was very challenging. At some other time, it was Genesis. We had some challenges at some point. Eventually, we exited. It was challenging. At the moment, I'm spending time on Trifik
0: and uh, Longhorn. At one time it was Greenblade Growers,
1: again, it had an issue, we sorted it out, moving
0: on. And why those two before we dive into the financials? I think
1: uh, terrific because it's new, it's uh, an IFC. We needed to pivot, given what we're doing in TRDL. At one point, also St. Amri, it's now doing well. So whenever you have that pivot, that requires uh, ownership, uh, guidance, and we pivoted to the international finance city. And so I've been heavily involved in the gazettement process, operationalizing it, uh, concluding the, the various transactions around the acquisition of it, bringing the additional clients. Uh, Longhorn, because they are at critical period, it's been uh, doing well as a brick and mortar traditional publisher, but the market has changed a lot. It's gone digital. So I'm spending a lot of time supporting them on that digital transition. So that's why those two.
0: Now let's say, uh... Maybe discuss the financial year 2023 results. Maybe you can give a broad CEO level view of the company in terms of the performance, and then we'll dig into the details slowly.
1: You know, what we focus on in terms of what we are tracking is what is reported in our company performance. This is how much cash are we looking to make in the year from our various investment activities. And, and that is in the report. So from a... A total return perspective. That's what we focus on. We had a reasonable year. We, it doubled to about 1.1 billion shillings because that's where we get the dividend from. And that's one of our key objectives is just how much dividend can we afford to pay in a year? So operating profitability increased from about 550 to 1.1 billion, but then we have cash flows that we earn from companies that don't necessarily go, go through the P&L. And these are shareholder loan repayments. So these are distributions from portfolio companies that come with the shareholder loan payments. So if you downloaded the briefing from our website, the number we track is actually on page 15 of that briefing. And those are the net free cash flows generated from operations. Because whether we are getting our shareholder loan repayments paid or we are earning a dividend, we treat that roughly the same. So this year, we have almost tripled in terms of free cash flows to 3.2. Because that's what we use to pay dividends, that's what we use to reduce debt, which are some of our critical objectives. The other metric we look at is NAV per share. This year we came down by close to 12%, and that is largely on account of various uh, impairment provisions that we took, and the largest of which is we impaired TRDL, 3.9 billion. And also we took a deferred tax provision because capital gains tax has gone up from 5 to 15%. So when you book a gain, that gain, the assumption is that when you do exit, you'll pay capital gains tax. So deferred tax, we had booked at 5%, but when it went 15%, it means you need to take an additional provision. So that was at 11%. And we typically look at our total return vis-a-vis the NSE index. That's our benchmark. The benchmark was at 12.3%. So that enabled us to achieve some of our objectives, which was on dividend, we had intended to pay a growing dividend. So we declared a dividend of 60 cents. And two, we we were working towards debt reduction because with debt reduction, you can then reduce uh, interest payments and therefore have more cash flow available for distribution to shareholders. So last year, we reduced debt by about half of where it was before. And we made some significant portfolio management decisions. Our most challenging company was TRDL and I think the terrific pivot, which we tried to work on for a while finally came through this year and were able to complete the acquisition. So those are some of the
0: highlights. And then we can start maybe with the, the Two Rivers and how it affected earnings. I think that's a key in terms of impairment and all. So if you can give a bit of perspective on all what was happening in Two Rivers, because you also say that you've been spending a bit of time with it.
1: You start with, the, it's interesting when you're making decisions, you, you first consider the business, then later you consider the accounting implications. So the critical thing there was a pivot because Two Rivers When it started its life in 2010, 2011, it was on the back of a very robust domestic economy and a very significant demand for commercial real estate within Nairobi, just driven by the strength of the domestic economy. And so the idea was create an upper node that would address that need in an organized format. There was a lot of congestion in Nairobi, traffic, rentals were high. So that's what Two Rivers was created to be, an upper node. Now, obviously, we all know that the domestic economy has not panned out the way it was expected. So the expected demand has not quite been there. So there have been a number of pivots that we've tried to reverse, whether it is on residential and the rest, which have worked, but not at the scale that is required to make the size of that investment make make sense. So the pivot was given that the domestic demand is not as robust, can we tap into a broader demand, which also includes international demand? Because although the Kenyan economy has not done as well, the global economy has been fairly good and the struggle there is largely around inflation and overheating economy that you're trying to slow down. And also what has happened post-COVID with the digitization, offshoring of jobs, people working from home, people working remotely has presented a new set of, of opportunities. So something we say looking at last year was the possibility of this being a special economic zone so that then we can host a global companies that are looking for allocation. And therefore, the demand shifts from just being Nairobi demand, but global demand that is looking for a home and a base. Now, obviously, that process is not entirely within our control because it's a highly regulated process of getting the approvals and the rest. So that's what we've been working on. But the other challenge is within the TRDN structure, we held 58%. So we're not in full management control. So getting some of the decisions necessary to get some of these things done was a bit problematic within that setup. So the decision was taken that we should just acquire the development rights and hold percent and therefore be able to move a lot faster in terms of what needed to be done. And that we agreed to do in January, but we wanted to complete after gazettement. So we got the gazettement in June. So we completed just before gazettement. The consequence of that was that then the the balance of the assets, then there was no way for two rivers to demonstrate how then they could recover them, even that we had not bought them and one was willing, had made an offer to buy them. So the decision was made to impair it. And for us, it made sense because two rivers is not a large investment for us in terms of the position it held on from an NAB perspective, it was 3.9 billion. On six sixty million shares, so it's six shillings per share out of sixty-two shillings. Yet the noise factor was just too high, so the point was mm-hmm. you can just take the impairment, remove it completely, and then just focus on terrific and whatever comes from it is, is upside. So we took the decision to fully impair it, which means to mark it down to zero, and that largely that was a large impact. So it's an uncash movement because. Uh, Valuations are, there's a judgment involved in them, but we took a conservative view, just impair what is left within TRDL and move on. So TRDL is unlikely to feature in our P&L going forward, especially from a loss perspective, unless there's positive movement in it. So the impact is not on the cash flow, the impact is
0: largely on the net asset value per share. And then if I had to take you back a bit, what was the original intention with the two rivers? No, the as, as, I, as I
1: explained, we were creating an upper node. If you play back, for those of you who were active in 2009, 2010, the outlook for the Kenyan economy was very strong. And so there was a lot of demand for commercial real estate, as I've explained, and well-serviced urban nodes. And that's the need we were seeking to fulfill. So it's a long-term play. But the domestic economy has not quite panned up as expected. So you then, you still have the same vision to create an urban node, but you need a, a change in strategy in terms of then how do you respond? Because you need to respond to a a market need. And interestingly, now that you asked that question, what you found out with the traffic in the one month that we've been in operation, there's a building that has been vacant from 2017, a whole office tower. The management just couldn't fill it. And in the one month they have been operational, I think today I got the report they have one floor left. It's about to fill. And this is now from international demand. So it was just pivoting and saying, look, there's only so much domestic demand. Can you focus on international demand as well? So that's the pivot we've had. And so the vision is the same, it's just a change in strategy.
0: So how's the rest of the portfolio looking like in terms of performance? And then I a the question that came in earlier in the day. is about the restatement of the 2024 22 financials. Maybe you can give a bit of perspective on why that occurred. Okay. So I want to deal with the
1: restatement issue first. And this is in the consolidated financial statement. So again, the law of unintended consequences, uh, we never set out to end up in a group structure like we have and prepare consolidated financial statements. What we are seeking to achieve was to have greater control of the portfolio companies. And we could not achieve that effectively as minority shareholders because then your exit opportunities are limited. Your decision-making is limited. We therefore took a decision we need to take controlling positions in in companies. The consequence of taking controlling positions in companies is that now you have to consolidate them as if you are a group and as if you are in full control of those companies. Because our intention is to exit each of these entities ultimately, the operators as independent entities and therefore they finish their accounts independently, get them approved by their board of directors, and then we receive them and then now we have to fulfill a compliance requirement, which is to prepare a consolidated set of financial statements. So I wanted to explain that at the onset because somebody can ask, how come you're late? How come, because we have to wait for everybody to finish their financial statements. Now in St. which is also has subsidiaries under it, they have a subsidiary in Uganda. And by the time they finished their accounts last year, one of their subsidiaries in Uganda had not quite finished. But they, but because we have a reporting uh, timeline here, we finished based on where they had reached. But then there was an adjustment on deferred tax, which was then in the final audited accounts of that particular subsidiary. But by the time that adjustment was coming through, the parent company had already concluded its account. So then they had to book a prior period adjustment this year. Now, because we are consolidating at the top, now the accounts we receive then have that adjustment then we end up. Consolidating. So, the point I'm making is that for us at Centum, what we track on an annual basis and our targets are not the consolidated. It's a company. Consolidated are largely for compliance requirements. We are required to prepare a consolidated set of financial statements. And we only ended up there because we realized that being a minority investor is just not working.
0: And maybe double click on that, on the group versus the company, because this is a very important thing. You can Give a bit of perspective on why people should focus more on their company, as you suggest. In fact, there is an
1: exemption provided for investment companies not to prepare consolidated financial statements. And we've been exploring that for a while because it just creates noise. But anyway, put that aside, because the way the FRS's are, International Financial Reporting Standards are designed, they're designed for a traditional manufacturing company or holding company structure where the subsidiaries are related and closely controlled, and therefore you need to aggregate them. So take an example of say equity group. Equity group has a set of banks which are operating in a highly controlled and complementary manner. And therefore to get a full understanding, you need to bring them together. But if you're a shareholder who has 51% of equity bank and you hold 51% of Barclays or APSA, the two are not running in the complementary fashion. It's just that you happen to own 51. So, when you report your numbers and IFRS, you're also consolidating. So, now we are consolidating very unrelated entities. But the Companies Act requires you to present a consolidated set of financial statements where now you treat these entities as if you own 100% because the assumption is that you're exercising full control and they are integrated. So, consolidation is where you aggregate financial statements of all the entities that you own more than 51%. You aggregate as if it's 100%, then you account for minority interest. And for associate companies, you take a share of profit. The company, on the other hand, shows you how you've done as an investor. So what dividend did you earn? What interest did you earn? What were your expenses as as an investment holding company? And then it shows you the movements. Uh, Because all our assets are held for sale. So meaning you're marking to market. So those are the movements that go through either other comprehensive income or impairment provision. So impairment provision is if you have a downside valuation lower than cost, you pass it as an impairment provision. If you bought a share at 5 bob, it went 15 bob, it comes to 10 bob, that movement from 15 to 10 goes through other comprehensive income. So it's your unrealized value movement. So imagine you had a portfolio of just one company, which is Safaricom, and you're preparing your company account. So you'd book the dividend you received as income any expenses you incurred as expenses, and then you'd pass the movement in the share price, say from 30 bob to 18 bob. That would then go under OCI. If You had bought it at 34 bob, then it would go as an impairment to come down to 18. The total return will tell you then what is your total performance. So what we track is a total return because that's where we pay dividend from, that's where we pay our debt as a company from, uh, etc. And that's where the NAV is because all the assets there are at what you'd consider fair value.
0: We were also double-clicking on the rest of the subsidiaries. So away from two rivers. How are the rest doing the rest of the portfolio? I think the rest are doing great, actually. The rest, in my view, are doing great. They're
1: either making money, distributing cash up, or growing. So that's why I said my focus is on the two where we... And we keep on changing. You sort out one and then another one becomes a, a problem. It's like when you're managing children in a class, The one is doing well, then one, the ones that are doing well start... others start doing badly. So if I just pick St. Amri last year paid up 1.7 billion. So we invested 7.8 billion. So far, actually, this is from 2020, they have distributed up 7.5 billion. So that's that I think is doing great. And also the Devco business is coming along very nicely. We are building a business that we might end up spinning off as a standalone development business. I think has done well. Syrian Bank is doing well, uh, profitable. The time we had challenges, it used to give me a lot of sleepless nights, uh, not anymore. In fact, there are more people calling me. Every other day I get calls from even some people I've seen on this group. Say you've found a buyer for the shares, they now have a buyer. Isuzu is doing very well. Paid a higher dividend this year, which continues to grow. nas was, had a challenging time during COVID because of airline travel. They are back to paying a, a dividend. Greenblade Growers actually excites me. This is our agriculture business. So initially very challenging. Uh, This year we are looking to see whether we can get EBITDA per month to around 40 million shillings a month. So it's a business with significant upside potential. It's earning all its money in um, revenue in in euros. So interesting. Jafari Credit is a new one. is a payroll lending business similar to Platinum Credit. So scaling it up progressively. Long one I explained as a challenge or two. Akira Jodhamwa is an interesting development. they taken a really long time to get to this level. But fortunately now there's a lot of excitement on green energy. We have a PPA, we have a government of Kenya, LOS. So finally, significant interest from potential investors. MSP has been a bit challenging. The issue there is because of the increase in interest rates, it's just managing it so that then you don't have significant impairment
0: provisions. So that's how it's looking like. I know it's quite a lot to digest, but maybe let's uh, have a look at the uh, capital allocation in terms of the two uh, things that are important to shareholders. So, I think one is dividends, and secondly, is the issue of share buybacks. So, maybe you can provide updates on those two and how that's going. So, dividend, we have a policy
1: to pay 30% of annuity income because you don't want to pay dividends out of capital. And this year we've declared a dividend of 100 million shillings, up 390 last year. So in aggregate, because we track, and I think there are a couple of portfolio managers here. You know, you judge a portfolio manager based on the cash that they started off with. So we we started off with 4.1 billion in way back in 2009. We've never raised a shilling of equity, and with this 100 million declaration, we'll have paid back 4.9 billion. So all the money is back, and the remaining shareholders' equity is largely. Uh, profit. So that's as far as dividend goes. Eric, what go was the other question? It's about the share buybacks. Oh, and the share buyback, we have bought 45% of all the shares that have been offered in the market. We have a price ceiling of nine shillings and two cents. So whenever the shares trade above nine shillings and two cents, we can't buy. And we really do not want to interfere in the market. So the broker tends to come into the market towards the close of trading to pick up any shares that have been offered within the price range and that have not been really taken up so as an underwriter. So I think that has been progressing well because the objective was to give shareholders who wish to sell and cannot find a buyer on any particular day an exit. And I think that buyback is achieving its objective.
0: I think we've wrapped up most of the key questions that I had from my end. It's uh, time to open up the floor to a couple of questions. A very common question that we keep getting all the time. And I think you'll use that opportunity to speak a bit about how the business model. So the question is, are you going to talk about why Centum reduced its stake on Almasi beverages? Yeah,
1: well, it's- Because of our model is to identify, create value and ultimately exit. So we, we sold at 10 and a half times EBITDA, and our view was that the EBITDA had peaked, the earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization had peaked, and also the multiple was at the top. So we sold in 2019, and I think we sold at 10 and a half times. So your guess is as good as mine, if we had held whether, they, whether we'd be able to still get at 10 and a half times multiple
0: today. Even challenge is that they think Almacy, or at least some of the companies that you sell are good sources of dividends. So I think they're worried that why do you sell the best and why do you keep the rest?
1: When we began the journey in 20...
0: Actually, we were the even who put
1: the merger together to create Almasi. It was a center project. We were actually very badly performing companies, the companies that were part of it. And I remember when we went around pitching Almasi and the idea of a merger, we collectively held 24%. Many of the shareholders did not think it would add any value. So they sold their shares to us and we had to inject additional capital. And initially, the the going was very rough. In fact, I used to have sleepless nights to wonder whether I misled the shareholders who agreed to the merger in the first place. Uh, at its peak, we earned about 500 million shillings. But the bulk of the return typically comes from the exit. So once you remove all the fat and you bring bid to its peak, then it makes sense to exit. And we stayed. If you're earning 500 million shillings in aggregate on a 20 billion shilling potential exit value, the the yield is fairly low and there's a real likelihood that you can lose value. So you have to exit at the top. So the value is created in between here as you sort out those inefficiencies. And that's what makes this business so challenging is that sometimes I envy people actually running portfolio companies because. You can run a company at the top. You're thinking about the performance of the company as opposed to value from an investor perspective. For an investor like us, the value potential exists in moving from not so good to great. And in that sigma, then there's value to be made. Once you're great and you just stick there, it's a comfortable place, but you'll just plateau. Like you're just at the same value or there's a risk the value may fall off. So that's the challenge that will continue to create value. And once you get to the top, you then get out. And, and repeat the cycle. That's how you then, you then create value and, and monetize that value
0: in your various entities. There's a question that is double clicking on the restatement. How big was the of that they had to restate the financials? Uh, not much, for like 200 million shillings. It was not a big number. It was something on the deferred
1: tax calculation. I think what changed was the deductibility of interest. So there was a limitation on how much interest could be allowable in uh, calculating profit after tax. So when it was limited, then they had to take an
0: additional deferred tax provision. These are movement from retained earnings to deferred tax. Justin is asking, there is a rise in NPLs, uh, especially if you look at the central bank numbers and even the bank's earnings. And then at the same time, he's seeing you going into credit through Jafari. So he's wondering, why are you entering now when NPLs are rising? Uh, good question. Yeah, that's true. Uh, bank NPLs are going up and the uh, we are doing
1: payroll lending. So you're doing a direct check off system. So the risk is actually not the, the borrower, the risk is the employer. So it's a quality of the employer. And the reason you're going into payroll lending is because if you're going to make uh, 3% per month, which is at 6% per year, and you're taking employer risk, which is government paper risk, and under that 6%, then why buy the bond at uh, 14%? It's the same risk. You can just lend. Because you're not taking the employee risk, you're taking the employer risk. So that is the difference. So on this book, I think the NPL is lower than 0.5% and it's largely on administrative factors or some very limited fraud, Uh, but it's largely administrative, not because of a default by the employer.
0: And then lately, of course, government is uh, delaying salaries here and there. Uh, So you are affected by that, just a side question. Yeah, there may be a delay of five, 10 days, That's, that's okay. Yeah, they'll eventually pay. I don't have more questions, but maybe you can give us a bit of your perspective because today the Court of Appeal allowed the Finance Bill, Finance Act. I think it's a good thing it
1: was allowed because that um, injunction was creating a lot of uncertainty about the government's ability to mobilize uh, domestic resources. The issue is our tax to GDP ratio remains low. And if you are a lender, you're then wondering what is the government doing to broaden tax sources? So... Anyone looking at a refinancing has to look at the income. And if you're having challenges, even enacting the law, I think it was going to create a lot more macroeconomic challenges for us because it just increases our risk rating. And I think that was also reflected in the latest credit report, which put us on negative watch. One of the risks the market had was the ability of the government to mobilize additional domestic revenue, given the challenges we're having with the injunction in the implementation of the current finance act. So
0: to my mind, I think it's a positive thing that injunction was removed. But then in terms of impact on disposable income, and I know you're affected by macro in terms of when the macro is pressing on, people tend not to maybe make some of the purchases that they could be making. Let's say something like real estate and all. So then do you see maybe the, the fact that people are a bit worried about the level of disposable income that will be available to them after the enactment of some of the taxes? Yeah, that is a concern, but I'm
1: more worried about sovereign risk. If there's a risk of default, it will affect all of us because we'll be locked out of the global capital markets. Even what we're trying to do like with the terrific investors will not come here if there's a possibility of a default or a significant credit rating downgrade. That will just make the cost of capital for Kenya very high. I think I saw today Ghana is at 30%. You have to choose your pain. I think the pain of a broader tax base and paying a bit more, I think is a less pain than the pain of just being locked out of capital markets. Kenya would really feel it because we're very integrated to capital markets, global access to capital. I think it's a risk that we underestimate and we should not trend very close. So, that for me is a big issue.
0: And in terms of uh, maybe coming back to capital allocation, there's a question about before 2016, 2017, the dividends from a center used to be around 1.2. Uh, and now we are at around 0. 0.6. So, people are wondering when are you getting back to right. Right. In the, the high are, watermark?
1: Yeah, before 2016, actually, from uh, nine to 2016. We were operating in a very buoyant economic environment, and towards the end of 2016, because we are exposed to so many sectors, we started feeling a slowdown. So we could afford to pay a high dividend and sustain a high borrowing because the return, the growth, more than offset the borrowing costs, and the growth in even the appreciation in asset prices. Now, the beauty of being exposed to many companies is that when you feel the the headwinds, we then say, look. We believe we're going to be heading for very difficult times. And therefore what we should do is deprioritize expansion and prioritize deleveraging to reduce risk. And so over the last five years, we've actually spent more than 14 billion shillings in, in debt repayments. And it does out to be the correct call. It's not a popular call and leadership is not popularity. It's not a popular call, but it was the right call in my view. Because some of these debts were on in foreign currency. And at that time, we were borrowing very cheaply in donor. But the view was that the currency was going to weaken. And we had a limited window to extinguish them. And had we not done so, we would have suffered two consequences. One was the weakening currency would have meant the amount we needed to spend to service would have been a lot higher in shillings. Two, interest rates have gone up. And three, just the environment for purchasers of assets has come down. So when you're doing investments, you must make a call early and take a view on what you think the economy is going to be. If you think it's going to be great, you want to maximize your upside. If you think it's not going to be so great, you want to minimize your downside. So coming into Centum 4.0, it was a downside minimization strategy. There, there was just no way there was, there was no way there was going to be an upside. So it was just how much downside risk can we minimize. So we then have to, sort of balance between debt service, debt reduction, and dividend payment, and get the balance. The good thing, when we started this process, we had 16 billion shillings of outstanding debt. We're now down to two. So with just maybe another one year, we'll clear it. And then that cash flow that has been going to debt service can then be available for dividend. I'm a shareholder. I bought my shares at 65. I also want a dividend. And many shareholders want a dividend, but I want a sustainable dividend. So those are the trade-offs we've had to take.
0: It's always a pleasure, I'm usually, reading some of the and, and letters, especially shareholder letters from uh, CEOs who own part of it. They usually address the shareholders, dear fellow shareholders. So I think it's a, it's a good thing that you're also a shareholder there uh, alongside the rest. So, I have a couple of questions have come in. So, we'll start with the one on two reverse. Uh, I think you need to explain a bit what the impairment was all about because someone is wondering, like, now is the mall now at zero value now that you've impaired it? So, I think a bit of explanation around. Uh, the impairment that happened again?
1: Yeah, so impairment means what value are you carrying the balance of the assets and in your accounts you cannot take a greater loss than your investment cost or what you are carrying it at and then you also think what amount of noise are you getting on account of this one asset and is it disproportionate to its representation in the balance sheet so two rivers is about six shillings per share so out of the 62 shillings of NAV, we had six shillings for two rivers. Having bought the balance of the land, the view then of TRDL was just to mark it down to zero, everything else to zero, including the mall, including their stake in the mall, so it's marked to zero. And if you do have a transaction and it's higher, then at that point you realize it. So it's a very conservative view, but the impact of that is that you will not see it featuring anymore in our consolidated financial statements, unless it's a positive number. So our current value in our NAV statement, which is on slide 21, you see two rivers development at zero. We had even impaired uh, CDN. Uh, we, had, we had come down from 4.2 to 2 billion. So you want to be conservative on the downside and then book an upside when it's realized.
0: Still sticking to the issue of uh, impairment and investment gains, someone is asking, the fair value gains on investment property is a big component of the real estate portfolio. So explain the figure a bit and how do you treat it since oh, it is an ever-present item. And then do you use uh-huh. that party value once? So actually, I wish
1: we were, were counting the old way, where these revolutions were going through something used to be called revaluation reserve. But I think because of all the challenges that happened with derivative accounting, it's, it was not a requirement that it goes through the P&L. So there's a requirement if you're holding investment property, you revalue it every year, but what the valuers tend to do. They look at what price have you been doing transactions at? What, what are the contract prices that have been recently signed? They have tended to bring their values close to what the selling prices are that St. Amri is selling at. So that then ends up marking the whole property to the most recent transaction. But the challenge is that now in the reported uh, P&L, it then understates the profit from the sales. Because for example, let me just put it simply, see some of the land that has been sold in Vipingo, we bought it at 150,000 shillings. You're selling it at an average of two and a half million shillings. So you're making almost 2.3 million shillings an acre of 2.4, 2.5. If you sell a thousand acres, it's 2.5 billion shillings, but you, now you don't see that in the P&L because it has been reflected as an investment. Gain. In the olden days, this used to be put in unrealized gain, and then it should move into realized gain. So it was a lot clearer. But you don't account the way you want. You account based on the IFRS. So that's how that moves. But then what you don't see is the on the converse is the understatement of the realized gain because it's not also now shaped the P and L. So that compensates for that unrealized uh, value movement. But on the other side for us when we are making A sale decision, actually, I don't make reference to what the current value is. I I look at what my cost was. So what is the cash profit we're going to make? That's because you're looking at a cash to cash IRR. So accounting considerations are one thing, but the consideration that drives investment decision-making is is economic value. Then later the accountants will say, okay, but this is the accounting implication, but that's normally not the primary consideration in
0: in making transactions. And then. Let's move a bit to the CDN. There's a question, C- bank. Uh, so I think the reporting hedge two results soon. Uh, so that should be interesting. Next month, I think the banks are reporting. But someone is asking, I don't know what exactly they mean, but is the CDN investor local or foreign? Oh, the, the one who is buying the minorities is a local. Okay. Are you incentivized to acquire the rest of the bank? Maybe not to sell all our shares, but uh, yeah, if they can add value, why not? We can work with them. And then someone is asking what your comment is on the crypto space. the same time, exploring, going there. Actually, I don't understand it.
1: So that's not one of my areas of competence. I have so much to cover already. So uh, that's not one
0: I think we've exhausted a lot of the questions. I look around a bit. uh, But in the meantime, we can also share what you're uh, currently reading. And I think what some of the things that you're also paying attention to.
1: Look, I'm paying attention like 99% to these portfolios. I am... Putting all my undivided attention to just doing a better job and uh, delivering better returns and performance in the context of the environment that we're in. For me, I'm really excited about what you are doing about Trifig because Trific, if I look at the, some of the BPO's, business process sourcing companies that have signed up, like one of them is creating like 3,000 jobs and they're targeting to create 10,000 jobs in the next five years. And just the sheer impact of what that means from an employment perspective. And these are people earning between five hundred dollars and $1,400. It's, it's middle class. For me, I find that very exciting and very motivating. I'm very excited about that and, and, and very energized by that. And I've just learned that uh, the narrower the focus, the more impactful, the re- the, the results can be. So that's where I'm currently, I'm putting a lot of my focus and attention to just to make sure that dream is actualized, especially around services. And recently we've had the head of state speaking more about services. I think that's one of the areas we can create a lot of jobs very quickly and also drive payroll taxes and uh, having center play a role in that, I think is quite a blessing. So that, those are some of the areas I'm really putting my attention on at the moment. Because if the domestic economy is not working as well, the global economy is working well. And therefore that ability to make that pivot, I think it's critical to be dynamic because it's a dynamic operating environment.
0: There's a question about pipeline. Where are you fishing these days? And how the deal pipeline going is looking like and in the last three
1: years, we've been focusing more on making our portfolio companies work better. And we've created some opportunities from scratch. So if you look at Zohari, Jafari. Federal lending, we say, look, let's just build it from scratch. If you look at Greenblade, we're doing a lot of export agriculture, seeing whether we can convert that 6,000 acres we have in to into nuts using Greenblade for export. Because 10 years ago, we were not even interested in export. There was so much local demand. So the whole focus was on local demand. But now when it's not there, you have to think about international demand and earning in hard currency and what else we can do. I think, again, it's about how we can play more into the international demand So right now the portfolio we have is keeping me very busy. Why people speak about pipeline is when you are working in a context where you are raising from fund to fund, and therefore you are under pressure to deploy in a new fund. For me, my pressure is to make what we have work, optimize value, and ultimately get a very well priced exit. And right now I don't have the luxury of thinking about new things. We have enough on our plate and just improving the operational efficiencies of what we have, like even St. Amri, how do we shorten the delivery timelines? When you are sold 90%, why do we need to take 24 months? How can we take 12 months? How can we improve margins? How can we sell more? Deploying is very easy and deploying capital is easy. Anyone can deploy capital. Creating value is very difficult and ultimately realizing that value. And why I know it's difficult is because the time we're recruiting and I asked Fred, why don't we get somebody? who has a track record of having deployed, created value and exited at least two or three portfolio companies. Do you know Eric, how many people we got with that experience? Zero. I then asked, okay, even two, none, even having lost money, like one, because people just do one thing, they deploy, they move from one job to another. They, so you're sitting, but seeing that entire chain. And that is the challenge because there's no simple investment. You go in, you work on it, and everything we've exited at one point looked like it was not going to work.
0: So that's what keeps me, is keeping me busy at the moment. In terms of skills then, how can people upskill in terms of being both ready for the kind of export services that you want to do at Terrific and also the kind of managing portfolio companies that you do at Centum? How do people get those skills? Because it's a tough job market to be in. Those are different questions. Mm -hmm. So for the skills
1: for the BPO market and the rest, one of our companies actually is doing a lot of work in this area. This is Tribus and they are working very closely now with the ministry and the BPO Association of Kenya. They are involved in putting together a platform that will soon be launched around first an internship platform where companies can list internships. And then once you're in the internship program, the BPOs can also list jobs because they're looking for people with some form of experience so that then you create that kind of pipeline. Because one of the things these entities want to know is where can we get the talent? And now when you have a national database and where you can match jobs with skills and at least give people that experience, that will be useful. And I know there's a lot of work going on around giving companies incentives to facilitate them to grant internships to to employees. I know that is currently going on. So so we've had to go all the way back along the value chain to deal with all the issues for all the sectors that we are seeking to target. And I know there's a lot of good work going on there. I think on the investment side, it's just a matter of time. You just have to be patient, even in investment, just to make sure you there's no replacement for experience to make sure that you have moved from end to end. What I found with many folks, they're just not patient. So they want to deploy, that is exciting, then they leave. Then they go to another fund that has recently been set up. They're deploying, they deploy, they go. But this thing to grow, create value, manage risk, and ultimately exit, that's where the work is. And for that, there's no alternative to just being patient and putting your head down and uh, dealing with. the issues there. So that ultimately able to say, look, I've done 10 deals, 12 transactions end to end. And therefore, with time, it's intuitive what you need to do. You can tell, you can just feel it and and you know what exactly needs to be done.
0: And then in terms of the positioning yourself in the current kind of tough economic environment, what's your advice to people who want to start businesses and what are some of the areas that you're checking out where there is opportunities where people can also position themselves? I think there's always an opportunity in a, in any environment,
1: just to figure out where the demand is. So there's always an opportunity. So if you look at it now, like I'll give you some case studies. Now we are focusing more around say export agri. Why? Because the currency is weak. So if you're earning in euros, you convert into shillings and you're costing shillings, margins are up. So in any situation, I think the mindset is very critical to say, where is the opportunity here? And where do I position myself to direct my business and not to spend too much time uh, complaining about the situation. So we, as I say, in every situation, there's always an opportunity. And also right. not to get too stuck. I think we're not to get too stuck to what you did, what you tried that didn't work. For us at Centum, if there's profit to be taken, we'll take it quickly and move on. If there's a loss to be taken, we'll take it quickly and move on. I remember the first action I took when I was CEO of sentiment 2009 was to sell RVR at a loss and moved on. So we don't want to hold on to something for too long, either good or bad.
0: As we wrap up, maybe you can tell us a bit about maybe life lessons that you can share with people and then also like reflections that you may have had in the past couple of weeks as you look out into the new financial year for you. So for me as I look into the new
1: financial year is uh, at this land, it's important to just keep positive because if you have a positive mindset, you tend to see things from a positive lens and opportunities differently because how you see things makes a very diff- big difference in how you can move things forward, especially in this sort of challenging uh, environment. It's easy to get uh, paralyzed by the challenges and forget that there are very significant opportunities. If you look at the situation, you have high unemployment. Oh, is that a bad thing or is it a good thing? It means you can get a lot of staff or, or employees affordably. So it all depends on how you see the, whatever situation you are in. And then figure out how do you then uh, create the best out out of it. So those have been some of my lessons. And thanks a lot, Tariq, for always hosting me. And thanks a lot, everybody, for being in touch. Those who are critical, thanks a lot for your criticism. Sometimes I reflect on them and they're being useful. For those who have compliments, thanks a lot. I really enjoy this kind of interaction. So, thanks a lot, everybody.
0: Thank you so much for always being available for speeches. I think we've done two in the last one month. Uh, that's uh, my record. So, we'll hopefully see you again in the half year results. And uh, whenever I, you have something new to tell us, let us know. And then we'll definitely host you once again. And I know it's a long day today. You've had since 5 p.m. today. And now it's around 9. It's uh, been earnings and interviews and all. So, thanks for making time to also come and talk to us every time you have earnings results. Thank you so much. And goodbye for all of you.